Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi, everyone. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hi. Hello. So today on the show, we are going to discuss the Netflix um, limited series, The Devil Next Door. Oh, I watched this a couple of weeks ago and have been thinking about it ever since. I know it's been out for a while, mm -hmm. but um, what I what I most thought about at first was not so much the validity of, you know, whether this guy was a Nazi war criminal, but more about kind of what we witnessed in it, right? I just think it's a really interesting example yeah. of... I mean, it was emotional. It was very emotional. And I, I agree with you. I was telling you before we started recording that I was more invested in the trauma of these survivors and so how they so badly needed closure. Yes. And as we'll talk about this, how that was... Um, yeah. Went up and down. For, like, there was just... It was so unsettling in yeah, some ways. Yeah, it was... Their emotion was so visceral, right? Like, mm -hmm. I just felt it. So, The Devil Next Door is a series about John Demianyuk. Demianyuk. Ah, I did yeah, it! Yeah, I did it. <laughs> uh, sorry to laugh. Um, His name was, is really hard to say. I was just happy that Demianyuk. I got it right. Uh, he was a suspected Nazi extermination camp guard known as Ivan the Terrible. This is what he was accused of. Um, and... He was living in Cleveland, had raised a family, and this Netflix series discuss. Um, well, it shows the trial. He was brought up on um, war war criminal charges, as um, as if he was Ivan the Terrible. And what the documentary goes back and forth on is sort of showing you whether he was or whether he wasn't. And it's not that there's an answer that happens. Um, there's absolutely an answer that happens in the courts, which we can talk about a little bit later, that the documentary actually, I don't think, completed the story, at least according to his family, didn't complete the story, um, which we'll um, definitely tag on in this episode and, and say what the, I'll talk about that a little bit. But first, we wanted to uh, zero in on memory and the way memory works, and the way trauma affects memory. So what you witness in this documentary series is several survivors of the Holocaust testifying in court that this is absolutely the man that tortured and killed people, that hurt them, that killed their families. This is absolutely Ivan the Terrible. They do first-person witness accounts of like at one point they make the guy walk up to to um to john and look him in the eye and identify him. and identify him and this guy was he he stood outside of one of the gas chambers so people would literally stand in line and walk through and he was at the the line mm -hmm. where i don't know if it was where they split them up whether they you know but they would have had face-to-face -face contact but they were very them. and they also witnessed and this is a really important piece of this as we get into the memory they witnessed people who were tortured and killed by this man mm -hmm. and he was known to do ivan the terrible was known to do things like 
um, you know, slice off a woman's breast as she was getting pushed into the gas chamber or he used like a lot of cutting and torture techniques. Yeah, horrifically psychotic. Horrifically. So they already know they're going to their death and then it's like adding insult to injury, you know, yeah, the times, times a million. He's torturing them physically. Yeah, needless torture. Yeah. Um, so we want to get to talk about uh, how trauma affects memory and eyewitness testimony, but I wanted to start out by just talking a little bit about memory because I don't think we all think about the different types of memory on a regular basis. So, and and it and it lays a basis for us to talk about uh, how trauma affects memory. So, there are basically two types. Well, there's a lot of types of memory, but I would start with general categories of memory, which would be implicit and explicit memories. So explicit memories in layman's terms are, are things that can be recalled. Um, personal events, facts and figures, things that we know consciously. And then implicit memory is the things that we don't necessarily, we can't necessarily recall them consciously, but we know them. So like, uh, I guess an example, Kathy, would be like riding a bike or something yeah, like that. Like uh, things that we've learned through life mm -hmm. um that we don't necessarily lose and don't have to really think about right. unless we, there's some trauma that happens right so yeah. that's so that's implicit which makes sense with the word and then explicit are the things that we just consciously like you know in 1944 xyz mm -hmm. so then within those categories um, within the explicit memory category would be um like so for example there would be somatic memories so um you remember what a bicycle is like mm -hmm. that's a bicycle so when you see people with strokes or mm -hmm. memory issues or alzheimer's like they often lose the word for things right so that's them losing their semantic like the memory the vocabulary around it yeah. exactly mm -hmm. uh temporal lobe uh, you know inferior parietal cortex that kind of information and mm -hmm. so that and then the other kind of explicit memory is the episodic memory and so that's your autobiographical memory where you um remember who what where events that happened you know oh, yeah. in college i xyz right and sometimes you'll hear on and these are extremely rare uh, occasions where people will have some sort of accident and they'll lose part of their episodic memory but mm -hmm. it's much more rare than people actually think yeah I, um when I was preparing for this and reading and refreshing my memory about the stuff I learned in school, <laughs> it was, um, this is the hippocampus, I think. Uh, the hippocampus is like responsible for episodic memory. And so episodic memory being compromised, hippocampus is sort of deep in your brain. Mm -hmm. And so, you know. It, like you said, like I think it's a really important point to it's say like it's memory rare. Ret memory retrieval. Yeah, it's yeah. rarer than, you know, it's not just right there. You, you kind of have to work to damage to work. the hippocampus. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, um, apparently, whoever created the brain really wanted us to remember. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, okay, so those are the two basic kinds of explicit memory. And then there's implicit memory, um, where I would, I, I believe, generally speaking there's two kinds of that so emotional memory so the memory of the emotions you felt during an experience so um specifically to what we're talking about uh obvious it was obvious that on the stand and being confronted with their memory of everything that happened to them and everything that happened around them um they were having a memory that was emotion based that was implicit and um 
and would supply someone with triggers. You know, this is where we get emotional triggers from painful emotions, from trauma or anything difficult that we've experienced. So that's like emotion memory. And then there's procedural memory, which is also an implicit memory um, of how to perform things. Like I was saying, how to ride a bicycle, um, you know, how to stop, how to start on a bicycle. You don't, you know, as a as an older person, you don't really have to think about it. You just get on a bike and you kind of know those things right. and you know gears and you know different things like that. So, so just knowing that there are all those kinds of memory, it's then we can start to talk, I think, about how um, trauma affects mm -hmm. the memory. And I don't know if you want to. Yeah, I mean, all of this stuff plays a part because, um, you know, these different types of memories work together to create the way we perceive the world and what we remember um, from our past. And so just like anything, when, when a trauma happens, we're affected. We're, we can be affected physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, all of those things. Um, trauma, like what Shannon started saying, certainly affects the hippocampus. It also affects the amygdala. So the amygdala is our emotional part of the brain. So emotions are a big part of the, the research that we do when we study trauma and we study recall. Um, and so this is why eyewitness testimony oftentimes is unreliable because as human beings, we feel first before we think, and maybe unless you're a psychopath, but the majority of us will feel first before we think it's sort of this automatic thing that happens. Mm -hmm. So I was looking up a, um, one article by Micah Edelson. He was, um, this is at the Wiseman Institute of Science. It's out of the country. I can't remember exactly where it is, but he was looking at how social influence um, can efficiently manipulate exist existing memory traces. So what, it, what, how that's relevant to this is what we saw in the documentary, there was a level of group think Mm -hmm. meaning that these survivors came together and all believed that the man that was sitting in front of them was in fact Ivan the Terrible. So for me, my first thought was how much is this emotionally based versus is versus it being factual? And that's a really hard question to have as an evaluator because you don't ever want to just say, oh, this person's emotional, so their facts can't be well, right. People tend to dismiss it, right? Whereas... Right. Whereas what we're, I think what you're saying, and you tell me if I'm interpreting this wrong, but like a person can get triggered and have, you know, these painful emotional experiences when triggered, you know, by seeing who they think is Ivan the Terrible on the stand, mm -hmm. they're obviously trigger triggered and obviously heightened emotion and blood pumping and heart racing. But it's often, but sometimes those triggers can happen without context. Right. It's like we're watching it with context, like... It's right there. Right. <laughs> but that could happen like walking down the street. Like a false emergency yeah. system. And this is why prosecutors and psychologists, um, even when we know that someone might be giving in, an intensely honest and sincere uh, description or um, when their test testimony, that it isn't necessarily credible. Right? right. And I think this is what was so heart wrenching for me to watch. I wasn't really caught up with him. It was more of watching these poor people. So the what what happened in this research was when they scanned when they scanned the brains, um, it showed that the amygdala and the hippocampus were more active 
in those who believed, I can't speak tonight, I'm sorry, in those who believed false memories. So I think that's really interesting that there's a more, and it makes sense, but that there's a more emotionally active and uh, peace working when the memories are in fact false. Hmm. Um, So this plays a role in legal cases when witnesses talk to one another. This is a lot of times, you guys, jurors are told to not, talk to one another. In legal cases, it's really important for legal teams, psychologists, everyone to really just keep to themselves because this is the type of stuff that will happen when people start to talk too soon. Absolutely. I think uh, there's been a lot of experiments, right? There's been a lot of psychological studies and experiments having to do with um how we all group think, right? How we all get together and then think a certain mm-hmm. thing. I was going to say, you know, trauma um, shuts down episodic memory too. So it does. I, I, and it, and it, it can prevent information from like different parts of the brain to combine and make a memory. Um, so, you know, they could have been, uh, it was really diff- heart wrenching to watch because I think because, we, we you can't really tell if it's him or not we're talking about like in the beginning of the documentary mm-hmm. there's a lot of information that sort of comes to light and mm-hmm. and then things that weren't in the documentary that come to light but going on the first let's say couple of episodes or or three four episodes where you're watching the testimony and everything you can kind of as an objective person as a person outside of that trauma you can kind of see that there's really no way to there's very little ways to prove what what they're what they're accusing him of you can't um there's a few things that come up and then go away and all that just Mm -hmm. like in any kind of documentary that kind of wrench you around (laughs) trying to and you're trying to figure out the mystery that's why these cases are so hard because there isn't 150 percent yeah you know and so you're just watching these people rake themselves over the coals Mm -hmm. and just be re-traumatized exactly repeatedly on the stand and you're thinking i mean this is what i was thinking i was thinking they're not going to get an answer no they're not even though he you know there there's an outcome to the trial repeatedly and then there's appeals and everything even though there's outcomes there's legal outcomes and answers it's still not really an answer nope and and here's the thing that happens too i'm actually working on a trauma case right now i'm serving as an expert witness on a case coming up in january and it's a trauma case (laughs) And um, I've had to look through a lot of the documents. And one of the things, and it applies to this this documentary as well, even though it's a different um, it's a different um, setting. It's more family based, which is how, in the case that I'm working on, what I was looking at was how much the children were influenced based on the parents' response to the trauma. Mm-hmm. So how that applies to the the documentary is. People in that company, so in in the documentary, it's going to be this group of survivors. In the case I'm working on, it's going to be the parents and the children. Mm -hmm. And the children definitely look to parents for approval or validation or affirmation. So if the parents are like, oh my God, this is traumatic, the kids are going, I guess this is traumatic, right? So if you have a party of people like this, and I don't mean party like woohoo, they're having a good time, but a group of people like this who are feeding off of yes, this is him, and they're getting emotionally charged, they're almost re-traumatizing each other. It's like two batteries coming together. They just continue to shock one another, but there's really no facts. What they are, at least up 
to that point, there weren't. What they're reacting to and what they're saying is um, affirmation are their emotions with one another. Yeah, it's such a difficult part of memory because memory is a, a big chunk of my dissertation. And it's like every time we remember a memory and talk about it, we re-remember it. So right. the way the brain works is that it's always growing and changing. The brain is like this amazing machine that is all in muscle and everything else. It grows and it changes. So every time I tell the story of this day, you know, in 1995 or something, I, I'm, I'm changing the memory and I'm, and I'm, and I'm mastering it in a different way. And that's one of the functions of the therapeutic experience. People will often come in and say, hi, oh, I feel like I'm saying the same story over and over again. You are. And I often <laughs> say, that's really helpful. Yeah. <laughs> because one of the ways we, at least this is what I maintain and what I write about is that one of the ways we heal ourselves is through our narrative. And so as we ship, shift and shape our narrative, remembering, um, you know, re-dash-membering things, um, we're, we're cobbling together the story that is healing for us. And so when I watch these, you know, people who have been through so much, you know, remember these things that happened to them, I, I like you said, they're they just need it to be true because mm -hmm. the the closure or the ability to scream and yell mm -hmm. at the person that was so horrific to them or whatever the piece is for them personally that they get to exercise by this exercise really is so desperately needed right for them to heal right and then there's you know the man that actually has to go to prison for it Right. You know, so right. it's it's a it's a tough thing to watch. I have a one more article here on eyewitness, emotional eyewitness. Yeah. Um, I this was, so this article is called Emotional Eyewitness, Effects of Emotion on Specific Aspects of Eyewitness Recall and Recognition Performance. So basically what they did was, and, and it's done by Houston Phillips and Meeman in 2013. It's an APA journal if anyone wants to look it up. But it what they do is they they get two groups of participants one who um, one group who becomes um, who are considered emotionally attached to the story, and then the other group who are neutral participants. So emotional versus neutral participants. So eyewitness testimony, just to clear up what that is, if people are like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Is evidence of what the witness believes to have occurred. But it may not tell exactly what happened. It's their belief. Right. Okay? Point of view is everything. Point of view is everything. So what this study looks at is how much do emotions play into the validity of a story. So emotional participants provided a more complete description of the perpetrator, but not necessarily a more accurate portrayal of the case. So they may be able to give very, very descriptive. Like I'm sitting across from Shannon right now. She's and making little. Yeah. And I might motions. be like, okay, she has long hair and glasses and she's wearing a flannel and mm -hmm. all of that might be very descriptive. And it's but, true. But I'm actually, <laughs> but what I, who I actually saw was a woman with short hair mm -hmm. with blue jeans and right. So that's so, how distorting that emotion is. Right. So the description becomes more complete, but not necessarily more accurate. So Interesting. 
the neutral participants provided more complete description of the actions. So I don't, I didn't see what she looked like, but she jumped over this wall and then she ran to the car and then she opened the and thing. That's, that's more, um, we can rely on that more. So what they, what they came up with was, um, the accuracy levels were actually quite high for both, but huh. emotion really didn't play. So this was their first experiment. Okay. So, they were left with some questions about still how emotion played into this. So both experiments proved that emotions don't prove accuracy that we do know. So the breakdown of emotional experiences of participants is highly complex, right? So we know this. And the reason why it's so hard to get these accuracies, like we're talking about, like everything Shannon just said about how we end up without an answer is because the breakdown of emotional experiences is so complex and it may have implications for the, the contradictory findings that we have in research. We can't really master emotions. I did a case a couple of years ago. It was a, a murder trial that had reopened and I, I was on uh, testifying on the side of the defense. And when I say that it's, it's an unbiased testimony, but I happened to be working for the defense on this, on this um, case. And the prosecutor was coming at me and I said, listen, there's no standardized reaction to trauma. Because they were trying to claim that when she picked up the 911 call and the way that she answered and the way that she yeah, handled it they always do effectively. That. Mm -hmm. And he was trying to tear apart my credentials. And I, I mean, it was just one of those where I just sat there and let him do it. And, and then I was like, I disagree. Can we move on? <laughs> you suck. Um, go away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you know, if those of you who are, are witnesses out there, you know, you just you don't. Loud. Don't engage. Don't get dragged into that, okay? Because <laughs> you'll most likely say something that doesn't help. Well, they want to watch you backpedal and yeah. clear. And I, you know, so... Make you defensive. But that's what I came back with was I don't think you actually even need degrees in psychology to know that we all react differently in emotional situations. So yeah. if you're basing your... your Entire argument. Entire <laughs> argument on that. Sorry, guy. So sorry. So sorry. Wrong. So <laughs> I think what, what we're saying here is this type of trial was so emotionally charged that we can't really know how much was factual for a number of reasons. But the mm -hmm. emotions made it, when we talk about the documentaries being swayed one way or another, I think the emotions in this really made it look like he was guilty. Yeah. And we're going to get more into that. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to get more into sort of the group think idea and some experiments that have been done on that in the past. And just, um, how, you know, everybody was very caught up in their own trauma and you were witnessing that. And so accuracy or, you know, it, which is what courts of law are looking for. I just think it's just it, it's almost the wrong platform for them to get the answers. So we're going to take a quick break and be right back. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. Thank you. 
Hi there, we're back. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. We're going to continue to talk about uh, trauma and memory and also now I think getting into the Stanford prison experiment. Yes? Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about John and if John was mm-hmm. in fact Ivan the Terrible, then I think the question that's posed by many is... Can people of that nature, meaning someone who becomes a complete psychopath, sadistic, killer, um, sort of blend into society for that long? So remember, you know, we just had this episode, or we just had this series on Kuklinski. Yeah. But Kuklinski left a lot of tracks. I mean, he he wasn't, you know, arrested for a while, but he had domestic violence Mm -hmm. and he had all these other things where... In some ways, he was hiding in plain sight. In other ways, he was a big bullet bull in a china shop, right? <laughs> yeah, he just had a job that, right. that lent itself to his demeanor. Let's That's put it that right. way. <laughs> but right. if we're looking at someone like John, who got married and, and uh, has been married, I believe, to the only spouse he's been with, yeah. and then he has grandkids and seems to be... And all the family was there with him on very board. Very supportive, and like, no one was claiming any... I mean, and clearly... We know how trauma works too, that those people can be bonded into that and not disclose. But yeah. that wasn't the feeling that I got. Well, that wasn't what Netflix represented. Let's not put at it all. that way. Not, yeah. not from the information we have. So right. what I want to talk about right now and, and have a conversation with you about, um, with you, Shannon, about is um, the Stanford prison experiment, which is sort of the quintessential behavioral experiment that helps us understand whether maladaptive or antisocial behavior is learned versus is someone just born that way. And clearly we know in psychology there's nature and nurture. Mm -hmm. But what this experiment um, did is it it, it looked at what happens when you put, and I'm using this this word lightly, good people in a a maladaptive antisocial or like dangerous space. Survival type of. Survival, right? But even in this, this wasn't really about survival because there was no threat to the guards. And they all knew it was an experiment. Right. So for those of you who don't know what this is, the Stanford Prison Experiment was a social psychology experiment done in 1971 at Stanford University by a psychologist by the name of Philip Zimbardo. This study could never be done now. No, okay, no. it would never pass. And I've seen him speak, board. and bef- you know, a while back. <laughs> yeah, and he says the same thing. Like and he know, and his his uh, his. I think I think she was a student at the time, but ended up becoming his wife. Yeah, Is that what it was. She was working as his intern or whatever on this project, and she was the one who looked at him and said, "Phil, you got to stop. This is too much." Yeah. So what, what what he does is he creates the simulation where he gets a, a random selection of people and he breaks them into prisoners um, and guards. And from the from the very start of this experiment, and if anyone wants to know more about this, um, there's a book on it called The Lucifer Effect, which is absolutely incredible. I've read it at least once, if not twice. It's very good. It's a good one. And so what he does is he, he starts the experiment. It's extremely organic, and he ends up... Um, he has whoever he chooses for the the prison guards to go to the homes of the people who have been selected as the prisoners early in the morning. Now, when they were split into these these different pools, these guys had no idea what this experiment was going to be. They were like, you're in pool A, you're in pool B, or whatever. And they, they just signed on and said, sure, I'll do this behavioral experiment. Mm-hmm. So they had no idea this was going to happen. They have them go to the house houses in the morning of these people, 
the the people playing guards actually do the physical arrest. They put them in the car. They take them to the prison. They do the whole thing, almost like a SWAT team busting into a house, right? And these guys, imagine, they'd never be able to do this now, had no idea. Now they're like, what the fuck did I just get myself into? Yeah. I mean, to, to provide context to imagine you're an undergrad student, you sign up. This is a paid volunteer type of thing. So they obviously... They probably signed up for the stipend or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's like, that's right. And you're going to be either an inmate or a guard and you don't know which. And it's a simulated prison in the basement of the psychology building. <laughs> and here's what's really interesting. The, the, the experiment ended after six days. Um, several prisoners left mid experiment. Now they were all told that at any time they could leave. Okay. But when you, the whole idea of this experiment and why it's relevant to what we're talking about here is they were put in the situation and just by the guards putting on their aviators and giving, given bully clubs, they actually changed their demeanor entirely. Yeah. It was supposed to last two weeks and I thought it was five days, but whatever, five, six, five or six days. And she stopped the, I forget her name, um, but it was her in his intern at the time, Mm -hmm. his, um, pre postdoc or something, whatever. Yeah, something like that. And she was like, she turned to him because they they're observing this the whole time because there's cameras and everything. And and so what ends up happening is once these prisoners get into once these guards get in their roles, mm-hmm. and now they've been assigned these roles and given the uniforms and the prisoners the same, they start to take full advantage of their power to the point that they actually start to do physical harm and mental harm. To these prisoners. Yeah, it's it's really the whole full story is absolutely interesting, fascinating. And there's been documentaries and this book and a lot, you know, obviously it's Googleable as well. Not not a word. Uh, but yeah, it was supposed to last two weeks and it grew like really cruel, really fast. Yeah. And many prisoners who were told they could leave stayed. They they yep. became the role that they had been given. And I think so. So that's the point. That's the point is Mm -hmm. bringing it back to John. Let's say he was Ivan the terrible. He was given an, an an extremely powerful position, especially at that time where the Jews were disposable anyway, and they wanted him gone. Mm -hmm. So there was already a justification piece. I'm, I'm sure that there was a situation where there were, I'm not, you know, I can't be sure, but I think, I believe that there was a situation where some of the Nazi prison guards were psychotic and drawn to it because of that and believed in the cause and all of that horrific stuff. And then there were probably some who it was this kind of situation where they had, you know, whatever, whatever reason there was that they had to do what they did, they for some reason felt they had to. Mm-hmm. And we know that they didn't and they're held accountable for that. Right. And that's what's right. And that's what's just. Right. But I also know that in that moment, just like in this situation and just like, um, well, a lot of different kinds of situations, it's kind of like, imagine you are given rights to be in control of another human being. Now, some people, and I and I believe this is true, I haven't read that book in a really long time, but I believe it's true that some people in the experiment had a very difficult time with it and were much more reluctant, and a lot of them opted out almost immediately. That's Because, right. um, again, it only lasted five or six days. <laughs> so this all happened very fast, and it was 24-7. Mm-hmm. So it was a 24-7 situation. Um, and some of the people just opted out very quickly. And then I believe there was a handful, if not 
two, three, four that were the ones that ended up exhibiting all of this intense cruelty. They, in the book, too, when you get to the end of it, they get into Abu Ghraib and all these other yes. stories, what happened in um, Rwanda. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they they really talk about um, like how when the U.S. military, you know, took tortured all the um, in the Middle East. Right. It was. Yeah. In, yeah. There's that movie out the report right yeah. now with yeah, Adam yeah. Driver that kind of addresses that. Yeah. So they talk about that. And just by being given that level of power. So. So my question to you, Shannon, is knowing all this, let's say that is the case. Let's say that is what happened where he, you know, was put into this position for X amount of time. And he adopts this role. He's given the message. First of all, they are given the message that the Jews are, are bad. They need to go. So that's already planted. So there's a level of justification. How does he then unwind all that, even if he's not a psychopath, how does he unwind all that and compartmentalize it and go into his life and that never psychologically affect him, as far as we know? I don't know how that's possible. I don't think I it mean, is. I mean, that's the, that's the really difficult thing for us in the psychology field because we have, I mean, I'm going to admit to the fact that I have a bias that tells me that obviously is based in a lot of research and a lot of different kinds of science and different things that we've learned in our trajectory in this industry. I have a bias that, that the, the, the things that he engaged in and would, would need to be a very uh, important part of his personality. And I don't think that he could just compartmentalize it and leave it behind. But then, you know, I also don't know, and maybe you know the answer to this, but I also don't know what happened to the Stanford um, subjects, you know, the people that did engage in a lot of cruelty in that I experiment. I say I read it. I read. I read it. <laughs> I read it. I read, it. I read about it. It's been a long time, but it'd be interesting. Maybe we can get back to you guys about that. Yeah, because yeah. I, my thought is... Did they then go on and have average lives and never engaged in any kind of cruelty or criminal behavior? You know, that would be an interesting thing. Like, where's the follow-up as far as, I mean, what we would need is, and maybe there's other experiment research that's been done on this. They do research on everything, so probably. But, you know, how likely is it for somebody who's, um, it's like, was he just having a psychotic episode for the whole war? Right. I mean, not every Nazi war criminal was um, torturing people before they were dying. Right. You that, know, that's right. It, that's it's right. like it, it's a it it what is characterized in the story is that Ivan the Terrible was given that name because he wasn't just, you know, not to minimize this, but like he wasn't simply killing people i mean that's just a stupid thing to say but i think i hope you know what i mean it's like he was torturing and doing horrific acts that were completely unnecessary i mean the whole thing was unnecessary it's hard to talk about it really is i don't know how to say it right yeah. <laughs> i'm just gonna go with that but his level of torture was a, a was a different level than some of the other guards and that's what the trauma victims were saying they were saying i would remember this guy because this guy was the worst of the worst. That's right. And I saw him do horrific things that the other guards weren't doing. And so that's the part where it's like, how how could he, how could that person be the same person we're looking at on TV? And, you know, what kind of comes out is that it's kind of not. Right. That's the way the Netflix and the way the courts, he, mm -hmm. you know, um, he gets convicted and then it gets 
overturned and then it gets convicted again. <laughs> it's a whole long kind of situation. And um, two things I want to add also, um, I'll just throw them in here, is that the net, there was a little bit of controversy around the Netflix um series as there has been about you know people are getting more critical of the netflix documentaries which i think is good you know keep them keep them on their toes yeah uh one of the controversies was that netflix has to amend the maps that are in the series because i guess the maps that they showed were of course were of poland and the way it was characterized uh, the the polish prime minister said you know the way it's um, characterized in the documentary is that Poland was in charge of those camps mm. and he didn't want, you know, that was inaccurate. And so there, I think there, I haven't watched it again. And I don't know if I watched the wrong version or the right version when I watched the series, but mm. apparently they've got to put in maps that make it clear that the Nazis were running those camps, mm. the Polish um, government and the people were not running those camps. And, and I don't remember how they're going to do that, but probably with some kind of graphic or something over it. Um, so that's one thing that, you know, that was unclear and uh, got some people upset. Yep. <clears throat> and then the other thing is that, uh, John has a son named John. He has a junior mm -hmm. and who's pretty outspoken, obviously, as you would be about these things and did an interview, um, with a local, uh, let's see, it's like a local TV station. And he talks about how Netflix didn't really finish the story and how that's, unfortunate and so i want to play this little clip of him uh finishing the story basically so cool. um let me make sure the sound is up let's see here oh hold on one moment technical difficulties um so one of the things that he talks about is that he um is that they stop the Netflix series at a particular point and what ends up happening. So John senior died when he was 91 and he was in prison at the time, but there had been appeals and such before that. And in the, in, there we in go. The day, Here he, is. he had three criminal proceedings that took place over the years and he was, uh, he won them all. Uh, the extradition that was criminal here in the United States was overturned by a decision of fraud by our government. His citizenship was restored based on a decision of an additional fraud by the government, other evidence that was withheld from Judge Batiste. And then there was an acquittal in Israel. And when he died in Germany, the uh, lower court decision was annulled and he died presumed innocent. So we won and nobody can ever change that. Unfortunately, the Netflix documentary did not complete that picture. So hmm. what he, yeah, so what he's saying is that there was um, what he calls a fraud by the government is his, um, you know, that's true, but it's a dramatic way to say that there was evidence that would have he that there was evidence that would have exonerated his father that the government hid or tried to hide or stuff like that yeah so there's and that's why there were appeals that happened and then mm -hmm. from what he's saying um because i know this sounds a little weird on that is that when he died he died an innocent man right because they had appealed it 
Right, where the Netflix just said, we, we don't know. or yeah, yeah, they they just didn't quite complete the, the legal story. And so I think that's important to know. And I'll just say, and maybe I've said it before, and I'll probably say it again, but that, you know, documentaries are not fact. Documentaries have a point of view. I mean... They ha- they they are edited. Sure. There is a story created, <laughs> you know. So, I I realize that now we we watch a ton of documentaries, whereas you know back in the day you'd see one every now and then. But you know, Michael Moore is a great example of someone mm-hmm. who he has a political agenda in making his documentaries, sure. mm-hmm. and so does everyone. And so you know, when you have documentaries that you watch. And you believe what they say, you know, there, there was, um, when we talked about the Amanda Knox documentary, there was a misinterpretation that we were sort of saying that that was, that was the documentary was true type of thing. And, you know, that's fine if that's the way you interpreted what we were saying, but it was more that we, you know, we discuss what's in the documentary and then go from there. But I do want to be clear that, you know, obviously we know that documentaries are films and they're highly edited and they're fictional in some ways. They're giving you an answer that they want to give you. Right. And we were also looking at different things too, like just her behavior. We weren't looking just strictly at the, but, but yeah, I mean, they're always, there's always, um, aside they're Mm -hmm. they're silently choosing right 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 so i believe that's what i've got to say about this you that is all (laughs) that is all good right no just kidding we're gonna actually come back and do our what the hell segment we have not gotten to do a what the hell segment in a while and i am really looking forward to that and for you new listeners well it's a thing we do so come right back with us What the hell, everybody? This is a what the hell segment, and we have not done one in a while. So what it is is Kathy and I both bring a true crime story that we have ripped directly from the internet with no research and no investigation. <laughs> we, we just find something that makes us giggle. It might be fake news, guys. Yep, totally. We do not stand behind the validity of any of it. It just, the story when we read it makes us say, what the hell? And so we bring it to the show. We certainly do. Okay. Do you want to go first? Or? I'd love to. Okay, cool. This one's co- called Don't Trust Those You Rob. <laughs> well, okay. I'm taking you all the way to New Zealand. This is cool. not a Floridian this time. <laughs> right. Last we spoke on the what the hell, all of yours were Florida. Oh, in Florida. In February 2006, a New Zealand shoplifter named Amy Adams, I do not believe it's the actor. I don't think so. Returned within a day to the butcher shop she had robbed because she saw her picture on a local TV news station stating that she had won a lottery (laughs) and had to appear in person to claim her prize. She rapidly drives back to the shop (laughs) <laughs> announces her name, I'm Amy Adams, points herself out in a still photo from a surveillance video, <laughs> and then promptly handcuffed by undercover policemen. Then she denies having broken any law all the way through court <laughs> until the judge explains that she was guilty and had no hope of convincing anyone to the contrary. <laughs> so then she pled guilty and still claimed she was innocent. So... Yeah. What an idiot. Yeah, that's pretty dumb. You just 
won the lottery at this store the day after you... So that would be the impulsive mind. <laughs> she just impulsively wanted what she wanted like Didn't a toddler. Stop to think about how ridiculous that yeah, was. Yeah, it was definitely to- toddler brain. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. So mine's from Japan. Oh. We are international Take today. <laughs> we are. Take us there. Uh, yeah. So <clears throat> a Japanese cross-dresser. Oh, I already like the beginning of this. Right? Yeah. It's a good lead. Thought he could avoid detection by donning a school uniform during his criminal acts. Oh, God. So this is, is a picture? This is kind of meta. No, it's just a picture of like a wig. Oh, God. <laughs> um, th- this is that, it, just that sentence is meta to me because he's a cross dresser mm-hmm. and then he's going to dress in a school, uni- a, you know, a girl's school <laughs> uniform on top of that. So it's like a dress upon a dress. It's not just like a dude dressing like a girl to avoid a detection. He's a cross-dresser That's right. that then chooses a uniform for his mask. That's right. Anyway, I was just fixated on that. So wearing a navy, oh, I love how they describe it, wearing a bl- navy blue miniskirt, oh, white God. blouse, oh, God. and shoulder-length brown wig, he was spotted bag snatching from a number of women. Unfortunately for the 24-year-old. I'm just picturing them. The image is horrific. I know. And he's 24. So now we find out he's 24 in a schoolgirl's uniform. (laughs) (laughs) So it says, it says, unfortunately for the (laughs) 24-year-old, Japanese schoolgirls don't sport a five o'clock shadow, nor are they five seven. Which just made me. Unless they have a lot of hormone problems. Yeah. So anyway, he was arrested at the train station. I love that. (laughs) It's just funny. It's like I'm 24. I have a five o'clock shadow. I don't even bother to like look like I mean it. I love that. And five seven. And for those of you who don't know, in Japan there is a culture of um, schoolgirl. There's a schoolgirl kind of fetish thing that happens, but <laughs> I just picture him being so obviously not a schoolgirl, so obviously a boy, and so obviously not twelve. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, mostly the fetish is like small. It's it's small boys, small men that look like they're very young. That's hilarious. So you know. So that's what the hell. So next week on the show, we're going to discuss the unbelievable mm. um, true crime series on Netflix. So we're having a little Netflix run here because there's been some pretty great uh, true crime. This in particular, however, is a fictionalized um, drama that's based on the actual case and the book that was written about it. And so we're going to talk about that next week, but don't forget to tune in for our shrink chat show on Friday. This is Tara talk. My name is Shannon and I'm Kathy sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.